We live in a world that is chocked full of disinformation and misinformation. It's hard to know what to trust when it comes to what we hear, especially in times of crisis. And if we don't weed out the fake stories, we can draw false conclusions about the world and end up making bad decisions. This can be really serious for people impacted by disasters when the communication is happening in real time. And on the other end of the communication line are the science communicators who, during times of crisis, need to hammer out tough decisions about how to convey credible information in a credible manner to share the right amount of information at the right time, and of course, to deploy the best messengers for the audience that they're communicating with. These are just some of the communication challenges that were faced by our guest back in April of 2010, when there was a methane gas explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And at the end of the 87-day siege, 11 people were dead and 17 were seriously wounded, with the rig blowing 4.9 million barrels of raw oil into the ocean. Hundreds of family members associated with the rig workers wanted updates on the situation and on their loved ones. Company executives wanted explanations. Political leaders rallied for accountability. And the public was just plain curious. And for a science communicator, it was a living hell. You know, sometimes Kurt and I like to reach outside of our traditional box of guests and dig deep into the world of applications. Sure, we like to talk to academic researchers just as much as- Or more than. Okay, (laughs) than the next guy. But sometimes we need to talk to guests who are just doing great work with behavioral insights and who might be doing it without all the behavioral science terminology. Yeah, and as we've said on this podcast before, behavioral science isn't inventing anything about human behavior in the same way that economics isn't inventing anything about how economies work. Mostly behavioral science identifies things that get in our way and puts names on them. And by identifying and recognizing some of these things, we can do a better job at addressing them. So in this episode, we're gonna take a look at communicating in a crisis. And we're doing so with an insider's view to the Deepwater Horizon disaster. We'll zoom out a bit and consider the way that people on the Gulf Coast would hear the very first messages about the scene and how those first messages would influence the way that they perceived the situation for weeks and months to come. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Our guest is Christopher Reddy, the author of Science Communication in a Crisis. And because the Deepwater Horizon crisis was a disaster that he lived firsthand, he has a lot to say about it. Chris is a very interesting guy. He's trained as a chemist and became an oceanographer. More importantly, he became skilled at crafting authentic messages, even when you don't have 100% of the information. You'll hear us discuss the question that all crisis communicators have. How do you know you have enough information to communicate? And we'll also hear about Chris's ability to balance focus with the big picture analysis, and he will share some of his best tips for communicating in a crisis. So, Groovers, we hope you'll sit back with a frothy draft of clarity and communication and enjoy our conversation with Chris Reddy. Chris Reddy, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Oh, thanks so much. Happy to be here. We are happy to have you here. And we want to know, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, that was fast. Love that. Not even, not that. even a uh, hesitation there. All right. Second question in our speed round. Should you use nerdy Star Trek references in a science book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. In any day life. In any day life as well. All right. Our responsibility to spread the word. Okay. Uh, Okay. So third question, is it better to stay quiet or to chat a little bit while you're watching an episode of CSI? Oh, oh, it's bad. (laughs) Uh, It's bad when you're dating your soon to be wife. (laughs) uh, Who's a mental health counselor. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Yeah. Oh, all right. We got, we got a couple of things that we can dig into deeper Mm -hmm. as we move on here. Last of the speed round questions. Would you consider yourself a chemist, a scientist, or an oceanographer? 
Well, it depends. I think at the end of the day, I'm a chemist. Okay. Okay. And, but you've talked about it. Let's get into this one right away. My laboratory is the ocean. Yeah. Because yeah. you you talk about this in in your book, right? You're in, and your book is Science Communication in Crisis, right? This idea of, of communicating science. And one of the things you talk about is how you present yourself changes how people view you. It's a framing component within here. So w- what is the difference when you'd say, tell somebody you're a chemist versus a scientist versus an oceanographer? Yeah. So in theory, I study the chemistry of the ocean. And, uh, you know, in terms of kind of kind of professional pride, I think I'm a chemist, Yeah. you know, yeah. And, but if somebody asks you what you do for, as a chemist, they will say, uh, I don't know anything about chemistry. The last time I did chemistry, I was in 11th grade and I almost burnt down <laughs> and their nose twinkled, you know, kind of crinkles up like they just about, you know, smelled burn, burning sulfur. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't often say chemist. You can say you're a scientist, which my title is senior scientist, which is, in, in my place, it's kind of the equivalent to being a full professor. Uh, but scientist is really hard for people to wrap their heads around. Sometimes they just can't get there. Sometimes it's more of a last pick in gym class kind of vibe. Uh, you know, they're looking for the white lab coat. Yeah. But there is a certain sense of prestige there. Yeah. You're not getting dismissed as a chemist. Yeah. Okay. But then there's the gold, and that's oceanographer. <laughs> that's the gold. Yeah. It is this. Everybody wants to talk to you. You know, I am suddenly. Um, cool. Uh, but I don't own a boat. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not a very good swimmer. I, I, I honestly, I have, to, I go to sea for research, uh, but I don't see the romance of it. Yeah. To me, it's like a prison. <laughs> well, how much time do you actually spend in the water? Uh, I only go to on a research cruises maybe every three or four years. Mm. I do a lot of my research. I like to do a lot of my research. Uh, uh, what I enjoy the most is actually walking on beaches. Okay, and kind of looking for pollution and and depending on what mm. the research questions are. But th- there's great irony in the fact that I'm an oceanographer, and yeah, you know, because if I said I'm an oceanographer. Then, and I said it to maybe uh, um, somebody, they would turn to the significant other and then say, oh, this is Chris. He's a marine biologist. Oh. But a marine biologist is a zillion miles away from what I am. I don't know the difference between a whale and a, and, you know, a, a goat. Right? I don't know anything Right? And so, but yeah, at the end of the day, my audience reacts to my title. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. you use it strategically when you're trying to make a connection with whoever wants to be informed about science or wants to talk about it. Right, right. So, well, uh, so let's dig a little deeper here. or let, Let's maybe let's cover sort of the broad view of the science of communication in a crisis really does a wonderful job of spelling out the importance of uh, crisis communication, you know, especially. Right. And so uh, you talk about the different channels and communication flow. Why is it so important for for scientists or chemists in your case, to communicate so effectively with the media and and the public? Well, I I would first start out by saying that when scientists communicate with folks outside the academia, um, they become better scientists. Hmm. And I think that, more importantly, it is incredibly self-rewarding and fulfilling activity. Um, It's not a chore. It's an opportunity to uh, overcome our imposter syndrome. Uh, a lot of folks think science communication is checking some tedious box. I look at it as an opportunity to, you know, hone my chops. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of bad days. We get a lot of grants rejected and all that stuff. And think about how you might inform somebody and tell them something that you make dinner that night. Yeah. And that's a pretty big deal. So, you know, from speaking to a scientist, I push that narrative to them. I think overall, I mean, it's, you know, it's very clear with it. Jefferson or whomever, you know, an informed public is always the best uh, without getting into the politics. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good thing. So how does it make you a better scientist? So what what aspect of communicating makes you a better scientist? Well, you don't need to have a PhD in a laboratory to um, ask questions about somebody else's research, which then may catalyze my own. Mm. I'll take an example. I was looking at an, a, a site not too far from where I live 
where there was an oil spill in 1969. Okay. And uh, it was a really bad oil spill. And uh, about 30 years after that, I was ended up being curious whether or not you could still find traces of the oil still there. Uh, not just kind of curious, like, if there's still oil there, why? And, you know, why is Mother Nature incapable of attacking that? So I went to one location and I found the oil where I thought I'd find it with some really good help. And I told a story about in a research paper about that I found oil from the spill 30 years ago. And then I talked about how the oil had changed, you know, that Mother Nature had manipulated the oil. And I was really excited. It was a really important paper. And I was giving an interview about it afterwards. And somebody said, well, how much of that oil that was spilled is still there? Mm. And I was like, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And I was like, that might take a little bit of work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you start thinking about what would you do to have to get that thing? And I can't do the timing, but I remember, you know, we think about research questions and a lot of times we frame them as, oh, that's a master's thesis, mm. right? Yeah. Oh, that's a PhD, right? You're like, oh, that would be a PhD with the work. I was like, you know what? That would be a really cool master's thesis. Yeah. Lo and behold, Emily Peacock uh, comes across my life and uh, ends up doing a spectacular master's thesis. And we figured out, I can't remember what it is, it's, you know, one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of percent was still in this little area uh, 30 years later. I don't think that I would have followed up on that unless somebody asked me who was not a PhD scientist. Um, and, you know, Emily ended up doing a great job, wrote a really nice research paper, and now has a really great research technician job, and you know, with the, the science that was, you know, um, you know, fleshed out and, and got her on her trajectory, her career trajectory, based on a research question that came from somebody in the media. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you... Oftentimes, at least from my perception, sometimes as scientists, we tend to get myopic, right? We we have yeah. blinders on. And so having some questions, as you said, that come from outside of that perspective can shed light for us to say, I never thought about it that way. And I loved your example of, of the idea of, hey, that was a question I didn't think of. And so it's a, it's a great way of thinking about that. And, and, you know, the funny thing is I remember saying it's a master's thesis and then Emily came into my life <laughs> and you know, she was like, I'm not interested in doing the whole PhD thing. Right. And, you know, I don't know. And I think she was shopping around, you know? And so I was also somewhat pre-primed to, <laughs> you know, to get this extremely talented person because I had had this in my head. It, it's, it is so cool. Uh, it, you also, uh, kind of along these lines, you talk about the role of different stakeholders in the communication process. And before I started reading the book, my first thought was, well, it's just scientists and journalists. You expand on that palette quite a bit. And I I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe wh who you think are the, the most important players and who, who sort of bear the biggest burden when it comes to uh, communicating. You know, going back, I am a chemist. So, uh, you know, I don't deal with much with health events and stuff like that. I deal mostly with oil spills and other coastal events, you know, pollution events. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, there are a lot of people interested, whether it's the media or, um, you know, have a whole different range of different publics, um, of people from the public. And then you have the response community. Now, I'm just an academic, so I don't have a mandate. You know, I don't have a job. I just happen to... <laughs> kind of be a little bit like an ambulance chaser. Uh, <laughs> curious to see what happens in the very first stages of an oil spill and how does nature and oil have this battle. So, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you could speak in one day with somebody in the print media, you might be on TV, uh, two different outcomes. Uh, then, you know, you might get some, have an opportunity to speak to somebody in the Coast Guard or the, you know, someplace else in the government. And then, you know, you could very easily meet with several different populations of the public. You know, you could have somebody who, you know, is asking you, when can I start feeding my family again? Mm. Uh, they're affected. You yeah. could have somebody who looks and says, oh, this is all malarkey. You know, uh, you know, oil spills are natural. Oil is natural. This is not a big deal. 
Of course, you go back and say, well, so is strychnine. Uh, <laughs> but that's a little tongue in But, but um, and then you have the curious public. You know, there's people who want to know about science. And, you know, and I will say that the hardest and kind of the heartbreaking part uh, is, you know, speaking to people whose lives are affected. Mm. And because, you know, as a scientist, we often think about this as a game about winning and, you know, getting the big papers and getting mentioned in the press. And when you start to talk to somebody whose lives and livelihoods are on the table because of an oil spill and, you know, should we sell our house? I've had phone calls after the Deepwater Horizon from somebody from Utah saying we have our honeymoon next week, next year in the Gulf of Mexico. Should we change it? Mm. That's no longer am I going to get a paper in science and nature. Yeah. So, yeah, you have it. Everybody, you have a whole range of different audiences and sub audiences. And at the end of the day, they are all hungry for different types of information and their willingness to wait. You know, so some folks are happy to wait for a five course meal and reservations for two years. But most folks want a hot dog and a Coke immediately. (laughs) And they want it with great certainty. And that's hard for scientists who really want to give you this novel experience, but you're just going to have to wait five years. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of looking at that, the the different constituents that you have. Have you noticed, and I, you mentioned this in the book a little bit, about the, you know, society's mistrust of scientists has kind of increased over the past few years. And so has that made that job of communicating A, more difficult and B, maybe even more important from your perspective? I would say both. Okay. You know, the the problem is, like it or not, we live in a world where you can pick up your iPhone and in four seconds have infinite amounts of information at your fingertips. And if for most folks, you read it and you're 100% certain that it's correct. Wow. You know, so we live in a society where most people are fed and nurtured in four seconds with absolute certainty. And now here comes a scientist who is bathing in uncertainty. In fact, if I'm certain about something, I'm not going to research it, <laughs> right? Yep. So we're wow. uncertainty in uh, files, right? And we are comfortable with taking a long time. And in fact, we want it to be long because you know it, it allows for the science to move incrementally and it, it avoids less errors and it gives an opportunity for synthesis and, and self-correction and, and reflection. And so it, often folks, science's biggest challenge isn't, you know, memorizing or being able to draw the structure of DNA. It's trying to explain to folks the culture and the rules of science and what we live by as much as trying to explain to them what a vaccine is or anything else. So is there an issue then of scientists trying to give people that hot dog and Coke when really they should be giving them the longer term and waiting for that five-course meal or some maybe after that? Is there a danger in scientists trying to do some of that communication too soon in your mind? Well, I mean, if you want to stick on the food run, I mean, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with giving somebody who walks in your front door for a dinner party an appetizer, you know, it was a wee bit peckish. Yeah. And, you know, getting them satiated enough that they're willing to wait, right? Uh So why can't you have both? You Uh know, why can't you, somebody asks you about something, you can say, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is what's changing. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know this, but I think that the right scientists are doing this, right? So you can give, you can give a lot of information, you have to couch it with a little bit of uncertainty, and then you can say, hey, listen, let me have your email and I'll follow you up with time. The problem is is that most scientists start off with listing all the things we don't know. <laughs> and that is the worst yeah. thing, right? We don't know this. And it's because we're worried that our colleagues are in the are listening to us. And we're afraid that our colleagues are thinking that we're too loose or we're being sloppy and we want to couch everything because we don't want to get in trouble. And, you know, that's as big of a challenge as anything else is that we're, every time we speak outside of our peer group, we're worried about being judged by our own peer group as opposed to being arguably judged by the people we're speaking to. 
You talk about certainty, and I, I thought this was fascinating. You you talked about this idea that you're never going to be 99% certain, or virtually never. No. 70% might be enough. How do you know? How do you know when you've got enough? I mean, I mean that is an absolutely critical question that I think, in many respects, makes or breaks a lot of scientists in academia. Mm. And, you know, amongst my colleagues, we often talk about some of the scientists who on paper look like are going to be rock stars, but they cannot get past what we call the 90%, you know. So you, you should be, you know, there's a point where you got to write a research paper because you have a story and it's addressing, you know, some outstanding questions. And, you know, at, at one point you have to say, you know, I have 90%. You know, I think that this is the right path because at some point you have to keep move, science moving. But there's a lot of talented scientists who get hung up and are trying to get a perfect result, trying to get this perfect result. And the end result is it actually is pretty, it harms their career. Um, but on the flip side, you know, when we're thinking about the certainty during a crisis, you know, the, you know, you have limited time, you have limited assets, and you're trying to make a bad thing from getting worse. And so in that case, as long as somebody can give you some insight about certainty, hey, you know, we know that historically, you know, three out of four times it leans this way. If you're a responder and you have two boats and three problems, you know, you're going to take that three quarters of certainty, which is not going to get you a Nobel Prize. <laughs> but it might save 100 miles of coastline from being oiled. Yeah. So it's a sense of timeliness, assets, infrastructure, logistics, experience of the folks who are helping making the decision making. Yeah, you have to zoom out. Yeah. You have to kind of zoom out, right, to get this bigger picture in order to have, in order to make the best decisions. Is is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, any crisis, there's no happy ending, right? This isn't a rom-com, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so any crisis of any scale, you are in the business of making a bad thing from getting worse. Or, you know, from oil spills, we call it a net environmental benefit analysis. Yeah. What are the actions that we have to do so that when we balance the checkbook of environmental damage, uh, you know, we got as, you know, we, we got as big of a net as possible because there are damages. But how do you lessen them when the clock is ticking and, you know, you have all these stressors going on and it gets tricky. Yeah. So in the conclusion of your book, you write a really great outline of 10 challenges that scientists face when they're communicating, yeah. providing solutions for those problems. The solution part is what I really loved about that. But one of them, it was just really interesting for me. And it was, it was your number four, speaking out. Public statements have real world, real world consequences. And the way that you frame the answer to that was, Speaking out, it's not what you say, but understanding what people are going to do with that information after they get it. So could you elaborate for our listeners a little bit about why it's important for scientists to think about that? Like, What are people going to do with that information? Because I think you bring a really great story about that. Yeah, I mean, I think in a broad sense, I have seen after, you know, I study oil spills. And so more likely than not, I'm somehow on the fringe of an oil spill that happens around the world might be just one email or it might be, you know, analyzing some samples. And in most cases, in the, in the early days after an oil spill, there is a quote from somebody who might be a so-called expert or even an NGO that has an environmental bent who has some science street cred. And they will make a statement of something like, oh, my God, you know, the, the place is devastated. You know, this is, this is an oil spill Chernobyl. And, uh, you know, they think that they're informing the media about the sense of the scale of the problem, which in many cases is over too much. But what they don't understand is, is that when you make statements like that and, uh, you know, a family, you know, one spouse is a fisher and the other one works at the fish processing plant. And they're hearing an expert saying that the place that they make their lives and livelihoods is now tr an oil Chernobyl and the place where their kids go to the beach and play is now, you know, a blacktop of Route 95, uh, you have significant amounts of increased mental health, domestic abuse. And so scientists making statements can touch people's lives. And that gets tricky. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's more than just tricky. I mean, I, I love that you take those things into consideration. From my perspective, Chris, you really pull yourself out of, I'm just a chemist here looking at the, the chemical reactions, but you really think about the, uh, you really think about the impact on lots of people. And I'm just want to say, I'm, I'm just really grateful for that perspective. So thank you for that. I, I, oh, yeah. I also wanted to, you know, we've, we've talked to people on the show who deal with conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists, David McCraney, Eric Oliver, who researches at conspiracy theorists at the university of Chicago, Shankar Vedantam, the head of uh, hidden brain. And, and, you kind of have a, a perspective on how to deal with counteracting misinformation. I was wondering if you could you could share some some of your thoughts about counteracting misinformation. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our job is to make a net benefit and take every opportunity and make it fruitful. I think the best route to as scientists, I mean, this is a big question, right? I think that our job as scientists is to identify ways in which we are, in, are getting more folks into the informed mix. And so maybe starting from the net, the opposite is most folks don't like to be lectured. Mm. And most people don't get a big kick out of looking at an XY graph and me saying the R squared is 99. <laughs> what? Uh, that's what? not going to work. <laughs> they don't just fall over and just go, oh, yeah, no, of course, no. Chris. Oh, why I mean, did I? Why was I so dumb? Yeah. It's even, you know, and you don't and listen. Don't worry about the fact that I'm using the Excel default colors, <laughs> and, you know, the nine tenths of a sized font. You know, and you're looking at this, and you're pointing your finger at that paper so many times that you've pushed a hole in it, and you're going crazy because they're not embracing it like you are, right? So you have to start thinking about what is the value system of these folks who are curious, and how do you? How do you make an impact? How do you not turn people off? And I think you have to start having a conversation. And I think you have to find places where there is a common bond or a common interest. What we don't want to do is X, Y graphs and then telling somebody that, you know, I got my PhD, you know, I did my undergrad at Harvard. I did a PhD at Stanford at Caltech. I did a Caltech postdoc and I was a PCAS award winner. Right. right. Now to me, I said, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And you're going to H factor at 90? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. but, but that is self-defeating. You know, like yeah. people don't, you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable about that, yeah. you know, and you have to be mindful of, you know, everybody has their own insecurities or where they, you know, what they gravitate to and their meaning that meanings to what they want in life. I tend to think that when you're dealing with somebody who, is on the fringe or is having a hard time is both from a geographic and maybe more of a personality is to start local. Mm. I think that me in Cape Cod with my accent telling somebody in New Orleans about that this oil spill isn't going to be a big deal will not resonate as much as an LSU professor. Yeah. And, you know, whatever it is, and you guys know this better than me, is that people trust people they know. And so I think a lot of this stuff can be overcome when we try to identify the best partnering of, of answering questions to people that they trust and know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think it, you know, I know Tip O'Neill said all politics are local and he didn't really mean it the way everybody uses it. But I think that the best science communications happens when it's local with either geographic or personality-wise or, or behavior yeah. or culturally. Well, you talk, you talk in the book about creating a team, right? And so is that yeah. what you're talking about here is, is, is yeah. Oh, identifying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, let's riff off my XY chart, right? I mean, maybe I have some really valuable information that would be great. And, you know, my take on that is no scientist should be making graphics, right? <laughs> I tell them all, find a good graphic artist. Uh, yeah. Start putting graphic artists into your research proposals. And, you know, I don't think any scientist is going to put on a cape and save the day about informing a public. But if you can align yourself with a graphic artist who has an appreciation for colors and what kind of figures you should be making and you speak to somebody who knows how to help you craft a tweet or how to make a good video or actually having a heart to heart and telling you that you ain't made for zoom. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 
Scientists are often thought about, you know, the wise person or the all the stuff that kind of puts us on a pedestal. But I think if you want to solve a crisis, whether it's acute or chronic, and you want a scientist, don't put them at the head of the table with a bigger chair. Put them in there and start meshing with other people who ultimately on, on the will have a net benefit in a, from a teamwork perspective. Now, that sounds like an after-school special, but I can tell you from experience, I've always done better when I have found smart people who don't have PhDs and don't have labs, but understand how to communicate and package something. I love that. I think that's fantastic. Clearly, the Deepwater Horizon spill in 2010 mm -hmm. was hugely influential in your life. You speak so deeply and personally and openly about the successes and failures that came from that. I'm kind of curious, and I hope this isn't too personal, but what was the worst part of that experience for you? <sighs> no, I'm starting to cry. Writing this book was really hard because from, you know, about April 2010 to, I'd say about 2018, I, you know, I dedicated my whole life practically scientifically and a lot of my personal life uh, studying the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, uh, which happened in 2010 and for 87 days, 60,000 gallons of oil was releasing from the bottom of the seafloor per hour. There were a lot of hard times and a lot of breakdowns and a lot of tears and a lot of disagreements with my wife and countless trips. And I missed my wife's graduation for her master's degree. But ultimately, rock bottom was at one point BP, who was what we call the responsible party, uh, who was in the mix of a huge you know, um, civil case for how much fines they were going to pay for releasing the oil was very keen to see the results and the, you know, all the details of the research that I did with another colleague about how much oil was released. And the reason why is, is that there's literally a dollar amount, you know, that the spiller has to pay X many dollars for every gallon of oil that's released. And I was part of a team that put, a, I think, a very good number as to how much oil was released. And, you know, BP, and, you know, and within the rules of, Federal laws, um, you know, wanted to challenge our results, wanted our information. And um, it was a very stressful time because we decided to fight. Mm. And so my colleagues, most other academics, and I wasn't, we weren't the only ones who had done research. Lots of great science was done. But our institution was willing to let us fight. And we said no on some things. We gave them all our lab notebooks. We gave them all our Excel data, all that stuff. But what they were curious about was they wanted to see all the various drafts in Microsoft Word of papers that we had already researched and published. You know, they wanted to see our deliberative process. Mm. You know, they wanted to see in version nine whether or not we had something in the track changes that said, well, let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, put the screws to these guys and let's, you know, let's, hey, let's throw this by a factor of 10 in there. You know, let's multiply it by 10. And, you know, we had nothing to hide from that perspective. But my colleagues and I just thought that that was just too far. And uh, that somehow or another that we needed to fight for science and that we weren't going to let them see our drafts. Just like, you know, any journalists, you know, we thought that it was the wrong thing. And um, that fight, which lasted for about six or seven months, broke me. I had a nervous breakdown. You know, I lost 75 pounds mm. in about six months. You know, there were times when I was laying on the floor, sucking my thumb. I mean, that was, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Ultimately, we had a victory and a little bit of a loss. But, you know, at the end of the day, it broke me. Yeah. So... So sorry to hear yeah. that, but it, but I think what it exemplifies here is that scientists have not just a, a, a singular role, but a larger role to play. And there's sometimes cost to that. And so it, yeah. it comes into this element of how do you weigh the cost benefit for yourself, kind of society, community, a variety of different things. And and again, in the book, you talk um, at the very end, you eloquently talk about Claire Patterson and his work mm -hmm. on um, lead in the atmosphere and and how he kind of identified that, but also the struggles that he went through in trying to 
convey, hey, leaded gasoline is killing us as a society and, and kind of looking through that eyes. Uh, can you, A, can you just talk a little bit about that story? And then did that play into, you know, some of the things that you're thinking of about what you, we need to do in kind of sticking up uh, as scientists to, to maybe hold our truths even when it's not easy? Yeah. So Claire Patterson was arguably one of the most influential scientists of the last de- last century, although it's not, you know, he's not in everybody's minds. After uh, World War II, the University of Chicago was this booming area of Earth geosciences and just unbelievable amounts of fascinating work that was getting pumped out in the late 40s and the 50s. And, and Claire was one way or the other charged with trying to estimate the age of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that had to do with him going and eventually trying to look at how much lead there was in different types of samples found around the earth. And sometimes chemicals in the chemical signature can act like clocks, yep. you know, uh, and so you can be able to age date something by the distribution of certain chemicals. And uh, ultimately, Claire got to 4.4 billion years, which, you know, is the number yeah. still. It's only changed a little because of some variables. But this guy was on a trajectory, very young in his career, of having the number of numbers, right? And just amazing. And But along the way, he's trying to measure this lead in these rocks and other field samples, and it seemed way too high. (laughs) And, you know, a good scientist or a great scientist goes, why is this lead so high? Uh, It shouldn't be this much in this type of rock. And, you know, lo and behold, he starts running down this rabbit hole. He finds out that the reason why his lead in his samples is so high is that our atmosphere is literally swimming with lead from, you know, from burning uh, leaded gasoline. And he pivoted. He pivoted from this illustrious, unbelievable trajectory of where he was going in earth sciences and planetary sciences about dating the earth and at a relatively young age and soon to be in the National Academy of Sciences, soon to be in all these things. And he went into pollution. And I can tell you, <laughs> even as a scientist who studies pollution 40 years later, in many worlds, pollution is thought as a dirty aspect of geochemistry. It is not seen to be as classical or as as refined as trying to understand the, the age of the earth, which has got a much untainted taste to it, right? And ultimately, Patterson puts aside all this work he's doing in age dating the earth and all the geochemical processes and ends up communicating to the world about how the dangers of leaded gasoline, fights the good fight. And, you know, ultimately him and others, you know, played a key role in getting leaded gasoline out of cars. And we've had a dramatic drop off in lead in our atmosphere and lessened the neurological damages to countless amounts of kids. And it's just an unbelievable impact that a guy like him went from measuring the age of the earth to changing lead pollution. And, uh, you know, the key part of him besides his personality, and I didn't get a chance to meet him, but I've talked to a lot of close friends of his, was he was feisty. (laughs) And uh, he sometimes was difficult, but he believed in himself. The other factor that he had, and this is so critical for scientists right now, was he was at Caltech and Caltech had his back. Mm. So in my case, my institution helped us pay the lawyer bills for us to fight BP in this federal case. And I appreciate they did it. And and other universities said, you know, shut up, you know, get this done. But at the end of the day, Claire Patterson is one of the most arguably influential scientists. And he did it because he was curious, but he was feisty and he believed in himself. And uh, there's a lot to be had there. I love seeing how inspired you are. I, I wish our listeners could see your face because you're just so lit up talking about Claire Patterson. It's very cool. I have a I have a good friend uh, who has a daughter who's a freshman at Tulane, and she's fascinated with the behavioral sciences, but she is very focused from her senior year in high school. She wants to be a science communicator. And I'm oh. and what would you what would you say to inspire her? What would you say? What advice would you give to a freshman at Tulane who wants to be a science communicator? Well, major in a science, 
I mean, uh, have an appreciation. And I don't want to sound flippant like that because I think that science communication and, and effective communication of our populace and, you know, elected officials can span a very wide platform, right? I think a lot of folks think of it as being a science communicator is being able to communicate, you know, a recent research paper. And in my mind, there are loads of ways in which somebody can effectively translate or get information in the right hands at the right time in the right place. But obviously, the, I think the key to being an effective science communicator, besides having an appreciation of science, is understanding how science works. Mm. You know, going back to this uncertainty and certainty and the timeliness. And, and on top of that, actually taking classes in the humanities about how people think and how do you change them. And I think, I wish I could take marketing classes and things like that. <laughs> and that sounds like a little disingenuous, but you know, you got to figure out how do you satiate somebody who's hungry for science? And, um, you know, I wish her the best. Have her call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 and we might take you up on that off, off, off mic, uh, but thank you. Thank you yeah. for that offer. That's cool. I wanted to to ask maybe one of the most important questions of our discussion, and that is: Imagine that you were on a on a desert island that has no oil around it, so there's nothing to study, and you have a year to listen to music, and you you get to take with you onto this desert island two musical artists. You get the whole catalog, but you only get to take two. Oh wow! I I I wish I could be describing how the the facial <laughs> facial disgruntling is going yeah. on here. This is, is is this a toughie? Well, it's. I think you guys are going to probably you know maybe put me aside as some type of neurological you know outlier. <laughs> Try us. I can't. You know, I was saying before we got on tape, I was saying that I, I can't drive. Because when I drive, I mean, I can I have a driver's license, but I, I, I'm not a very good driver because I want to look and think about everything that I see. And I, I don't consider myself Charles Darwin, who's over there, you know, trying to understand why, you know, evolution. But I just, for me, music, and this might sound really crazy, is a distraction. Mm. I can't listen to music. Ah. It's it's way too much for me. I'll start listening to the words and I'll say, why is that word being used? And, you know, why are they saying that? And so I never listen to music. I can't do it. That's interesting because we, we ask, we often ask people, do you listen to music when you work? And some people do, many don't. Tim is, is definitely has a, a statement on this because he... Yeah. gets too into the music. So similar to what you're yeah. just saying here, this idea of he can't, he has to put full focus in on the music. And if he doesn't yeah. do full focus in on the music, uh, it, it it pulls him in. And so he can't do anything else, to, you know, like within reason, right? But but it sounds very similar to to what you're saying, but you, uh, maybe at a, you know, X times, you know, 10 or something on, on that, so. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like some stereotype from TV, but, you know, the quirky scientist, but like, I can't, if there's one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is finding my soft spots and I have to limit every distraction I have, or I just will, you know, go into this kind of infinite loop of asking and thinking why. Yeah. But on the flip side, I have a son. Well, I have two sons. Okay. And, <laughs> and my son, Willie, uh, who's turning nine next week. I don't know how this happened. But the radio, my wife had the radio on, was driving in the car, and the kids were, you know, I have three kids, and they're, you know, pains, you know. And somehow or another, it was either We Are the Champions or We Will Rock You yep. was playing, right, by Queen. Okay. And it worked. You know, the kids got into the beat. You know, you know, Queen is yeah. you know, just so. So I was like, and my son really liked it. I can't remember if it was We Will Rock You. And I was like, you know, like, this is okay stuff. That That's kind of. That's not Queen's best, yeah, right? Yeah, no. And I no. said, so I downloaded Queen's Greatest Hits. And whenever we were in the car with him, I started playing it on the radio. And I remember saying to him, I was like, oh, William, you're going to get the Bohemian Rhapsody. You'll like it. And then, you know, I was telling him about Wayne's World. And yep. sadly, <laughs> Queen and Wayne's World is connected, which is probably blasphemy. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, uh, it all works. Uh, so fast forward three or four months later, my son, William, 
next week is going to be Freddie Mercury. I don't know. Can you see this? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Freddie, he has a, a he yellow has jacket. Do, yeah. He has to do for his third grade end of the year project. They do a wax museum where you have to dress up like a person and then, you know, somebody pushed the button. You have to give a biography. <laughs> about oh, I love it. And the kids had any choice they wanted. And he said, dad, I either want to be Larry Bird or Freddie Mercury. What? And I said, William, you know, always chose the route less traveled. I was like, <laughs> no idea uh, about how you want to be the outlier. You know, so I start giving my son career advice. And, <laughs> and I was like, William, don't do the same as everybody else. Every other kid's going to do Larry Bird or, or whatever, right? Yeah. And, you know, because we're in, in the greater Boston area. And he has become the biggest uh, Queen fan and knows all the songs and uh, can tell you, and I can tell you now, because hanging around with him, that Freddie Mercury was born on September 16th, 1946 in Zanzibar. Yeah. Uh, At the University of West London and, you know, for graphic arts. I mean, I can tell you everything about Queen, not because I'm a musicophile, although I I, I enjoy listening with him, but more as a bond with my son. That is fantastic. Chris, what a pleasure it is to, to have this discussion with you today. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. Oh, man, this is fantastic. I loved it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Chris, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our crisis brains. Yeah. Yeah, they, those crisis brains are responsive, aren't they? Well, they're they're you're in a in a crisis, and yeah. our brains respond differently in a crisis than they do when they're not in a crisis. For good reason, we need that focus. We, we, yeah, yeah we need the, to have that. the amygdala kicks in. We get a whole bunch of neurotransmitters and hormones flowing through. Focus gets narrowed. We kind of overemphasize certain facta- facets. You know, heart rate goes up. All of these things in a crisis, and. You're absolutely right. That's what we have been evolved to do. But sometimes, as we talked with Chris about, that doesn't bode well for communicating right. in a crisis, right. Right? right? Yeah. Okay. So, so Kurt, where would you want to start our grooving session? What do you think is, uh, what do you think is notable and and worthy of kicking off this grooving session? Well, it's the world that you and I live in all the time, Tim. It's okay to be uncertain. (laughs) Seriously, it's like this idea that instead of thinking in absolutes, think in terms of percentages of certainty, percentages of likelihood, Ah. all of that stuff that we talk about all the time because, and it comes back to Annie Duke every single time. Oh my God, it is just all of this idea around you know, at a, at a certain point, particularly in a crisis, you, you don't have all the information. Mm-hmm. You won't have that information in time to be able to help move and communicate what's important for people to understand and to know, to get them to do the things that are required. But you need to be able to take that and move forward with it in, and be uncertain. And there's a there's a method to that. And I think that's the kind of key inter- in person. Which also reminds me of uh, Nathan and Susanna Fur, who have been actually, we're, we were talking about this earlier. We've actually talked to them several times. We only, only published one episode with them. But they talk about risk and uncertainty as being, you know, very different things and how important it is for us to embrace uncertainty in our lives. Actually, right. you know, they have a very forward, positive vibe about it. And that's a great lesson uh, to come away with, especially getting back to this crisis communication. Like, okay, let's embrace the uncertainty. Let's actually live into it. And I think combined with Annie's stuff, as you said, that is, that's just the real world. Well, and I think the key piece here is that if you are communicating, and this is, I think this goes even beyond a crisis and hear me out. I think when we're communicating science that too often what people are looking for in the general public and what we tend to sometimes give them as science communicators is certainty. 
is this idea that if I do X, I will get Y. Mm-hmm. And this idea of science is usually we showed in this instance under these circumstances with these conditions <laughs> that when we did X, we got Y with this population at this point in time, uh, given these confounding factors. And what we tend to do is then kind of all of those moderators that I use there fall off. And yeah. what we say is we did X and we got Y. And, you know, that's not really how it works. There's an uncertainty of, well, we did X in this thing, but it may lead to Y outside of these parameters that we placed around or outside of these conditions. We think it might, but we don't know that. And that's okay. And it's the same thing, I think, in in a crisis where, uh, you know, if we're too certain about something at the beginning, particularly when we're in a a level where we don't have all the information, it can lead to misinformation uh, as we talk about, you know, the like long-term consequences, right, of of what you say at the beginning, and then you find right. things have changed right. because people anchor in mm-hmm. on those initial conversations that you have. I just want to cantilever on this really wonderful thing that you teed up about behavioral science specifically is really is really good. Actually, the scientists, the scientists, the researchers themselves are good about saying in this situation, under these circumstances, in this environment, this is this is what happened most of the time. And we of course, we like to generalize that. We like to just pull that that out. And it's really good to not do that. And I go back to Michael Hallsworth's great study on tax collection in Oklahoma. This modification of a letter about tax collection for small businesses had a fantastically positive result. And when he replicated it with with a very similar approach in New Mexico, it didn't work nearly as well. And didn't work at all. Yeah. It actually, it was the opposite, the, right? The, so. There was a bit of backfire effect on it. And and the big difference was, it wasn't that the, the research was bad. It was that the context was different enough for us, you know, for people to respond differently. So I, I, that's, a, that's a really good point, Kurt. And this is the piece, I think, again, from communicating in a crisis, and particularly as a scientist communicating in a crisis, is that the situation, the context of the crisis, we can go, oh, this is a hurricane, just like that last hurricane. It's not. <laughs> it's not. That is a different hurricane at a different time, mm-hmm. at a different location with different people. And so what might have been true in Hurricane A isn't necessarily true in Hurricane B. There's similarities. Of course there sure. are. But make sure that you uh, address those appropriately. But there is a point, Tim, and I think we can talk about this, right, is like you have to satisfy. You, you can't wait till all the information. Right. You People right. need to know what's going on. They need to have the best guess. And that gets to, I think, you know, some of Herb Simon's work on satisficing in various different pieces. And, you know, we we want to have this desire for perfection, but we risk having a bigger impact by saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, as opposed to having an opinion on things and maybe couching that with percentages and saying there are these other factors that could happen. When Chris was talking about maybe we only have 70% of the information, but we want to be sure we want to have 100%. Satisficing was one thing that went through my mind. The other thing, and this might be a little weird, but our conversations with Logan Yuri and Seth Steven Savitovitz about okay. dating. I know. About dating? <laughs> yeah. So Okay, bring bring this correlation in here, thanks. Tim. Hang with me, hang with me. They talked about being able to discover the right number in dating, right? That if you- 12. Well, it was- 15. It, it was, have a, a, I think you had to have enough dates, and I don't remember the math exactly- you had to have enough dates where you sort of sampled the potential universe given the number of years that you expected to date and the number of people that you expected to date. And then okay. once you got to that point and you said, okay, I think I've had my sample, then the next best person that comes along that is 66% of all of my, you know. Yes, above, above whatever that average is, yeah. right? And yeah, then, then yeah. that's who I should go ahead and, and connect with. And- <laughs> 
And I guess what, so it, what, it, what I thought of was, well, okay, is there, is there this number? I mean, because Chris is actually saying, well, maybe you only have 70%. And this may be discoverable in dating, but maybe in the middle of a crisis, it's a lot more difficult. <laughs> it's much more complex and not for lay people. And I think this is why experience and expert knowledge matters. Uh, I agree 100, 100%. And I think the interesting piece that you bring there that Chris brought up, but also bringing in the right number, right, from from Logan and, and Seth, is this idea that there is a right number. And maybe there isn't. Maybe this is, as you said, this is where experience matters. And it is a, it's a judgment call. And at some point, because you are an expert, you just have to make that call to right, say, right. this is enough that I can make a statement and make the statement well in order to, to move forward and to give the people what they need, whether that be government officials, whether it be corporations, whether it be the people on the Gulf Coast, whoever the audience is. Um, I think that's a, a big piece of this. Yeah. One of the things that I got from this conversation, though, is it's understanding who should be giving that message, mm. right? This idea that, and, and the audience, to, to the audience, it could be very different. So this idea of making sure that there's the liking principle of persuasion from Cialdini, right? When we talked with him. And, yes. And are you likable? Are you similar? And, you know, Chris brought in the the local professor, right? From the local right. school, right. as opposed to him being a new, a new Englander coming down and talking to the people of the Gulf Coast and understanding that they're going to hear a message from somebody who they feel a similar kind of a component with as well as like, and those aspects is really an important aspect of this. The, the messenger effect. Right, the messenger, effect. and that it makes, yeah. and that messenger makes a difference, especially in the crisis. We want to have that. We want to be rooted in the the sort of the gravity and the content of the message, and not get caught up or predisposed or distracted by the messenger. So, so using a messenger who is like or similar, or, uh, as Cialdini would say, those that's going to make the messaging go better. Yeah. All right. What about Claire Patterson? So I'm glad you brought Claire Patterson up because he is such an interesting cat to me. And I was unaware of his work uh, until, until we read this book. And this idea that he, that Claire Patterson is uh, this chemist and he's focused on, of all things, atmospheric science and lead that like he becomes like, First of all, he's an amazing scientist because he helped figure out how old the earth was by measuring traces of lead in the mineral zircon. Well, and he was on the Manhattan Project. I mean, come on. I, and, Remarkable. And, and he was born in Iowa. <laughs> Not that I was born in Iowa, but I still have an affinity to Iowa. So there you go. He's born in Iowa. You even you went know? to college in Iowa. Went to I did. And he went to Grinnell College where I had jumped off of a train that I hopped on after a bad argument with a with a girlfriend and rode for hours in the middle of the night and oh, stupid me and oh. I jumped off in Grinnell. Anyway, long story. Oh, we don't oh, no, get no, into that. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we are go going fast. fast. <laughs> We're going to talk about Claire Patterson you here. Jumped a train in to Grinnell, Iowa, because of yeah, a bad. I didn't know it was going to Grinnell. I didn't actually think that I was going to jump a train. I hopped on a train and it started to move. And I'm going, oh, all right, it's going slow. It's in the middle of Iowa City and. And then pretty soon it got going faster and faster and faster. And, and all of a sudden I'm going, oh, crap, I can't jump off on this. This is going like 80 miles an hour. So I ended up riding it to Grinnell in the middle of the night with a jean jacket on when it was probably 50 degrees out. And I was pretty freezing and thought I might die. So there you go. And you lived. I lived to tell the story. But the know? girlfriend is no longer. Oh, that was a long time ago. That was, yeah, yeah. a long time. Okay. Yeah. All right. So back to, <laughs> that was fantastic. So back to <laughs> Claire Patterson as being this incredibly bright guy. The the huge contribution that he makes for me is that he figures out how to measure lead in the atmosphere and that 
he realizes that the cause of this lead in the atmosphere is from automobiles. From the well, there was gasoline. an increase. There was an increase in lead yeah. in recent years, and he realized this is strange. There was a for millennia, you know, there was pretty constant amount of lead yeah. from what he could find in the trace amounts in these fossils and other other aspects of this, and then all of a sudden, it shot up, and then he starts to speak out. He says, "Wait a minute, this is because of automobiles using leaded gasoline." We can do something about this. And as a science communicator, he becomes like the, the hero of the story going through this really dramatic change over, over several years. But he convinces, he actually ends up convincing the gasoline industry to start reducing the amount of lead. They, well, the government, right? The government yeah. to yeah, yeah. To, to mandate it. I, I thought it was just amazing. In, in fact, in 1971, this is an interesting little tidbit. He was excluded from the National Research Council panel on economic lead contamination, even though he was the foremost expert in the world. He was like the number one guy. And they're like, because he is communicating against what, you know, because he's not saying what we are towing the line on. We're going to kind of excommunicate him. And I, it reminds me of what's happening in behavioral science right now. Yeah, I think, okay, I want to get into why that reminds you of what's going on in behavioral science right now. But I do think there's an aspect of that that I just want to point out it is the importance of science communication. It is the importance of being able to look at the research that you are doing or that other people are doing and making it so that it is understandable to non-science audience mm -hmm. and then making it actionable. Yeah. So there is something that, particularly if you have science that can impact people's lives, whether it be lead in the air caused by leaded gasoline, and we can reduce that and thus save countless lives and you know, I would have been a much smarter person if if I wouldn't have had to breathe in all that lead as a kid, you know, growing up. Me too. And move forward with that. But the science, the communicating of that science, A, you run into roadblocks, whether they be because uh, certain interested parties don't want to hear that. You look at climate change, you look at all sorts of different facets around here. And then you have to be able to get that message across sometimes in very difficult pieces. So yeah. I think it's really important uh, just to point out how important science communication is. Agreed. Did I get enough importance in that important importantly, sentence that I just said? Yes. Importantly, you did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me, why does this remind you of behavioral science? I don't want to be obtuse but we're, we're going to groove on this uh, here uh, very shortly. But just to let listeners know, I think there is a crisis right now in papers being retracted because of fraudulent data. And yet the theories and concepts that were promoted in these, in these retracted papers is going to live on. Like mm. there are, my concern is that there will be people who will be out there saying this is X is true when X has actually been disproven. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I think we've got a communication issue and we've got, we've got a couple of episodes before we get there because we've got more, more conversation around falsehoods and things like that. But I think it's a challenge that we're going to have in actually writing these wrongs, getting over the myths, if you will. Yeah, and I think there's another piece to that, and hopefully we'll groove on this as well, is the trust that people now have in science, in science. overall. Yeah. And the decrease in that trust and how do we as science communicators address the fact that there was fraud, address yes. the fact that there is the the methodologies that were used in the past have not necessarily been good science methodologies that are replicable and other aspects of this, as well as, you know, the misinformation that is going out there, which has led to the facts of saying, hey, you know what, you have your facts, I have mine, and I'm going to go and, and believe mine. 
And even if it comes from a reputable scientist, that doesn't necessarily have the same uh, weight that it because used to have. Right, because it's not the first nugget that we had in our minds about that, and and even though it's wrong, yeah. And, and our, our lack of being able to trust the scientists anymore yes. because of all these other factors. So, yeah. all right, so... I think that 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 should do it, don't you think? Oh, I mean, well, yeah, there's, uh, it was a great yeah. conversation with Chris. Uh, there's pl- it was there's it was more. yeah, and we want to make sure that listeners understand that Chris Reddy's message about science communication being used not just as a science communication, but in many different situations. And the challenge uh, that a crisis brings are pretty much the same as a lot of other situations in our lives, just at a different scale. Yeah. So if you do find yourself in a crisis, make sure you're relying on some of those tips that Chris shared and to understand how stakeholders' needs and goals and timelines and measures of success first, these all play a role. And think about those before you decide on the best way to share the most accurate information. And the most accurate information in this episode is for us to express our gratitude to you, our Groove community. And to say thank you for listening. And we hope, we hope that you're able to take some of Chris's points with you this week as you go out and find your groove.